Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where we talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. I know that the lighting in here is crazy right now and I was like, oh, I need to move my camera because like the ray is light, but I actually kind of think it's cool. I'm about to talk today about hope and uncertainty and um, I, I was hit by a car yesterday on my bike um, and I'm really lucky to be mostly unscathed. I don't really know if I have the words for it, but it brought up a lot of emotions for me mostly around uncertainty and hope. I'm sure you all get the gist that I'm a big feelings person, a big meaning person and when we wander out into the world we're dealing with other humans and there's natural forces too like hurricanes and wind and sunrises and it's this big mess of beauty and, and uncertainty and within that entire breadth of existence there's this underlying thread of uncertainty amplified by hope with everything that still happens we're able to carry this glowing orb of belief within us and in the past few pieces on here i've talked about stories and meaning and nostalgia and today i want to talk about hope so there's a few things going on in the economy right now which i'm sure you're all aware of the federal reserve pausing banks continue continuously blowing up, debt ceiling drama. And what's interesting about these three things is that they're all projections of hope, the hope function. The Fed manages the economy now to get it to some future state, a hope of balancing things out. The banks are traded to their death by the market based on what happened to previous banks, a complete lack of hope. The, the debt ceiling is an optics-based battle based in potential wreckage of our economic future, a gamble on hope. Hope is essentially a function of information, knowledge, expectations based off uncertainty, a chance of something not happening or happening. For the Fed, there are no real solutions. They're flirting with a pause, slowing things down as a credit crunch spirals from the banks failing and continued quantitative tightening. They raised 25 basis points yesterday and that might be the last time that they do that for a while. For the banks, they keep on failing. The market is punishing any bank with West in its name and a spectacular show of market fundamentalism. JP Morgan bought FRC, making them essentially a monetary policy entity. And now small and medium sized businesses are getting beat up. For the debt ceiling, there are four main solutions, a discharge petition, the 14th amendment, the coin, or premium bonds. The best solution would be to raise the stupid thing and stop playing political football, but nobody asked me. But when you can run these three things through the hope function, it sucks. Uh, it sucks a lot, right? The postmortem on SVB essentially boiled down to this is everyone's fault, which is just annoying and disappointing and sad that we're that incompetent at that level. And when you have these three things with all the other stuff going on, running through the collective hope function that we all have, it makes sense that we would all begin to feel a little bit drained. It changes how we perceive hope. So with uncertainty, when FRC was bought out by JPM, the CEO of Citigroup said, it's always a sad day when you see a bank fail, but we are very pleased to get to the major source of uncertainty that was reigning for the recent bank turmoil addressed. This is a case of a small handful of banks that were poorly managed and getting this addressed is very important. But uncertainty is only part of the problem. When uncertainty compounds, it can decimate any idea of hope. Like if you keep on getting kicked in the shin, soon you're going to expect to be kicked in the shin. As banks continue to fail, it is a kick in the shin to the economy and people will begin to expect that. And this gets into the second variable, which is information. When I posted about my bike crash yesterday, a lot of people began to correct one chart, which was awesome. And like from a data perspective, sure, like maybe, but it felt like I was living in a warp where it was like, can they not see the underlying point of the other three charts that are included? The point is that people are dying and that cars are too big and too many and too much. It became a big battle about being correct. And that's what stuck out to me. The act of reasoning of realizing that there's indeed a forest amongst all those trees was somewhat lost to those people. There was no future outlook, no desire, to go beyond, no predictive modeling in their heads, no, well, maybe X means Y. And that's the problem with the broader discussions that we have as a capital S society. Information is different than knowledge. As David Lovelin wrote in Continued Histories of the Future about the fall in the number of stories that talk about the future, perhaps the ability to collect and parse huge amounts of data in real time has drawn our attention to short-term prediction instead. And I do think that we are somewhat stuck on the short term. We are starstruck by data by the constant tornado that is the internet. Jory Graham has the view that technology anchors us to the present moment and 
that's where we get lost in this idea of information versus knowledge. As Carrie Howley writes in her profile on Graham, a life tethered to a phone is a life tethered to present tense, a stream of insistent notifications beckoning the mind back to now. The internet beckons into a flat now, a constant attending to, a well of insistent digital need. She notices in the people around her a sense of shame without a clear source, a sense of scarcity, a sense of entrapment. There is not space for the mind to build a picture of people who don't yet exist. The internet is ever present and real and beneath this threshold of visibility and in this it resembles time. So no wonder we feel trapped and no wonder we can't properly extrapolate to the future. Uh, everything is a remake, everything is nostalgia, nothing is new, nothing is curious. We get lost in this constant thing. And because the internet functions as time, it can remove the need for real world passage of time as it muddles reality. And this is a large part of how we often get wrapped into our own worlds, how time becomes stagnant, the removal of empathy, the insistence of unhappiness to many. There's a lot of reasons for this. We have a loneliness epidemic. The US is in the loneliness crisis. We don't see each other. Suburbs, car culture, and the subsequent lack of third spaces is to blame for this. But also boomers have turned the workplace into their entire life. So infrastructure is tied to work and work is on a place to find meaning for a lot of people. And we tell stories that make us lonelier. These stories of the zeitgeist are usually dystopian. There are many reasons for this. The types of novels of dystopia are easier to write, like think Hunger Games or Divergent, the YA novels from the 2010s. The present and future both have to be believed in for utopia, which is hard and it's difficult to agree on what utopia looks like, but very easy to agree on dystopia. There's something ironic about the combination of these two things and how they both get exploited. We are lonely, and we engage with these stories that make us feel lonelier, not just dystopian novels, but the constant news cycle that is tilted towards negativity. We are so connected, the world is at our fingertips, but why do we feel so bad? As Ruth Franklin wrote in her review of Benjamin Love, When We Cease to Understand the World, what if the monsters are present not because reason isn't awake to fend them off, but because reason and its slumber actively generates them? If monsters can exist not despite reason, but as a consequence of it, then perhaps we're not as safe in the rational world, the land of logic and science as we thought. We're at a weird point. It's a point where things feel like they should be getting better, like the monsters should be abating. After all, we have logic and science, but it certainly does not feel that way at all. But then of course, it's like always kind of been this way. There's a letter from Goeth to Luden. I'm sorry if I'm saying name, names wrong. Even if you were able to interpret and investigate all sources, what would you find? Nothing but one great truth, which has long been discovered and for whose confirmation one does not need to seek far. The truth, namely that in all times and in all countries, things have been miserable. Men have always been in fear and in trouble. They've been pained and tortured at one another. What little life they had, they made sour to one another. The beauty of the world and the sweetness of existence, which the beauty of the world offered them, they were not able to esteem or to enjoy. Only to a few, life became comfortable and enjoyable. Most people, after having played the game of life for a time, preferred to depart rather than to begin anew. That which perhaps gave or gives them some degree of attachment to life was the fear of death. Life and thus like life will always be, thus it will always remain. That is, after all, the lot of man. What further witness is needed? So think about this, right? Uh, we've always been kind of grouchy and we've always been grouchy and the world has always contained beauty that we have not been able to fully see but we get stuck we get stuck on the short term and the inevitable loneliness of being a human and on the stories that we tell each other about the future and the cycle of time that is the online space 
But why, right? Like, why do we get so stuck? Mostly because people lose curiosity. David Roth wrote The Limits of the Billionaire Imagination on Everyone's Problem, and it's a broad discussion on how boring and trite these billionaires have become, how their boringness squashes all of us. That inequality, when compounded over time and amplified by the cretinous and absolute joyless mediocrity of the people whose accounts that co that compounding is done, winds up not just freezing the world in place, but shrinking it to the size of their own end curiosity. As Kelsey McKinney wrote in The Internet Isn't Meant to Be So Small, in the late aughts, Twitter and Facebook still valued curiosity, but over the next decade, they realized it wasn't good for business. Curiosity brought people to their platforms, but then it whisked them away. Hope is curiosity, <laughs> and curiosity has been squashed by the mechanics of incentives, of short-termism, of the exploitation of loneliness. And that removal of curiosity is brutal because sniffing around and checking things out is a key part of being human, of being, of living. And there was a final gem of the line in Howley's interview with Graham, who was diagnosed with cancer. The thought first and foremost of leaving behind her family. You have to keep living, she had written. You have to make it not become waiting. And there's a difference between living and waiting, right? That's what Goethe is saying too. The monsters are always going to be there and there has to be availability of a world beyond the screens. The development of your own structure for seeing the world and an embrace of authenticity for us to be truly curious. Obtaining these things require us to seek some concept of self, which in a world that demands loudness and certainty can be hard. I think often of Nancy's listening, a masterpiece on the difference between listening and hearing. To listen will always then to be straining towards an approach of the self. One is on the lookout for a subject, something itself that identifies itself by resonating from self to self. And so what that means is listening is different than hearing. There's something within us that breaks when we stop listening to one another, which exacerbates all of the above problems. It really is quite similar to Simone de Beauvoir's views on individuality, which I talked about last week. We can only embrace individuality when everyone has the chance to embrace individuality, and we can only find a true self if we just listen to each other. We have, we are the mold of the world around us and we have to be able to take in the world around us to truly grow as humans. There's a difference between living and waiting, a difference between knowledge and information and between hearing and listening and curiosity is key. The stories that we tell ourselves have to change. It's forced us into buckets of nostalgia of retelling familiarity because that's the only stable thing left. As, er as Ernst Bloch, the OG hope thinker. I'm, I'm butchering these names. You can tell I'm a reader and not a listener. But as he wrote, wrote about hope, hope must be unconditionally disappointable or else it would not be hope. He then gives two reasons for this. Hope is a future facing and because of that embraces the idea of change, not the idea of continuously doing the same thing and incorporates chance. Hope is exposed to the condition of defeat and it's not confidence. It can never be mediated by solid facts. Hope is based on uncertainty on the idea that things won't work out, that you can be disappointed. In his essay on block Ger Gerard Richard writes, this is a brutal line. The negative knowledge that this undecidable disappointability may unpredictably interject into any discourse of closure and abjection prevents even the deep warning that is born of discouragement from simply remaining itself. And what all that means is that when we operate with the block Gian idea of hope, hope is disappointable. We will be let down and life isn't perfect and finishable. However, this hope that we have would remain steadfast because it's still there in some form despite setback and modifications to the general idea of what hope was. I think this is the problem with the stories that we tell ourselves with the meaning that we give things with the nostalgia that we get wrapped into. The valuation model that we have for hope is based on how we see the world around us and right now that's based on a bunch of boring billionaires trying to shoot stuff into outer space. And I know this article and this video was full of quotes and references but the core idea is that hope is profound and curiosity is the forcing function and as we process technology a world where curiosity can feel stifled where information isn't always knowledge perhaps it's best to redefine how we think of hope. Hope is allowed to be angry and real as long as it's resilient and we need it right now. 
As Daniel Hadas wrote on his thread on Moby Dick, every sort of technological process has made some natural problem less pressing, more easily solved. But death is the one exception. Death is still as it always was. And so at the moment of our death, even if never before, we will face that white whale alone and with no pills or machines to help us. Death is a constant. There is likely a need to tell better stories, make space to listen to one another, be endlessly curious even when the world sucks. At the end of it all, hope is the only thing that is left. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. This is a newsletter, a podcast. I hope you all are doing okay. Talk to you very soon. Bye.